0: we understand frederick douglas the fugitive american slave is expected to deliver lectures on american slavery in leeds the week after next mr douglas is a noble specimen of physical intellectual manhood and we have no doubt his lectures will excite the same interest in leeds which they have done in belfast liverpool edinburgh and other places leeds mercury saturday the 12th of december 1846 hello and welcome to the last best hope the podcast that looks at america from the outside in my name's adam smith The speaker being announced by that Leeds newspaper in 1846, Frederick Douglass, was born into enslavement in Maryland in 1818 and went on to become the most famous black advocate for the abolition of slavery in the Victorian age. In 1846, as you've heard, he visited the British Isles. This was the first of several visits. His own escape from enslavement gave him the authenticity that white audiences craved, and it wasn't just to big cities like London or Leeds that he travelled, but to Cockermouth, Cullicuts, and Corcoddy and even more out-of-the-way places across the British Isles. His speeches combined horror and humour, pathos and passion. He demanded that slavery be laid bare so the mask from this abominable system would be exposed to the light and would burn and wither it out of existence. Douglas was probably the most successful, but he was by no means the only black abolitionist who came to Britain in the years leading up to and after the American Civil War. Hannah Rose Murray of the University of Edinburgh has written a brilliant book called Advocates of Freedom, which analyses this incredibly extensive transatlantic black abolitionist activism. She also has a website, which I'd recommend, frederickdouglassinbritain.com, which, among other things, contains incredible maps showing where and when meetings with black abolitionists were held. Abraham Lincoln thought the US was the last best hope of Earth, but Douglas flattered his British audiences by telling them that it was they who lived in the land of the free. When I spoke to Hannah Rose Murray, I began by asking her about the impact of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the 1830s. We should remember, of course, that it was accompanied by a massive appropriation to pay compensation to slaveholders with no provision for the future status of the formerly enslaved. But even so, did British emancipation lead black abolitionists in America to see Britain as a city on the hill, you might even say, whose example showed the way for America? Was that why black abolitionists made the journey across the Atlantic
1: It's not the sole reason. So the first sort of lectures by Black Americans were being given as early as 1833, 1834 by folks like uh, Nathaniel Paul and James McKean Smith. And then you have Moses Roper, who was really the first African American to publish a slave narrative in England in 1837. And then he led an extensive tour over the following years. But as you say, that context is really, really important because you have The end of the slave trade in 1807, the end of um, slavery in the British Empire by the end of the 1830s, and another uh, key date actually is 1839 because that's when you have the organisation of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, which was committed to trying to um, build on sort of Britain's um, success. Although I will put that in a verse of commerce, and to try and abolish slavery in the US and Brazil, Cuba, and throughout the, the world. And African-Americans as well, at this early stage, um, but really throughout the 19th century, were building on the success of, of former uh, black abolitionists like Alard de Coyano and Ignatius Sancho in the 18th century and, and also Mary Prince uh, in the 19th century. But this particular reason of why they were coming in the early 1830s was, as you say, to sort of build on the sort of growing momentum of anti-slavery. Um, there was a small network of abolitionists that could support them and Moses Roper, I've just mentioned, obviously publishes a slave narrative, but he also actually comes to Britain for safety. He um, he comes to Britain because he is understandably terrified that he's going to be re-enslaved by, by his enslavers. But it's really the 1840s when African-Americans start coming in, in higher numbers because there's this sort of huge or larger network of um, abolitionists. Um and just to focus quickly on a couple of other reasons, actually, while I'm talking about it, is that they were publishing slave narratives as early as the late 1830s and early 1840s, and the literary and commercial success of those narratives is something that we don't necessarily talk about particularly on this British side. But they were often outselling famous Victorian authors that we uh, that we know today. But they they were encouraging um, British and Irish audiences to sign petitions, practice non-fellowship with enslavers and slaveholding churches, to raise money for um, the, the legal purchase of themselves or family members and, and also to sort of encourage the boycott of slave-produced goods, which was something that British abolitionists had a lot of experience sort of throughout the 18th and early 19th century.
0: Yeah, you've touched on so many interesting issues uh, there, Hannah Rose. Um, let's just, can't we just talk about um, Moses Roper, who you, who you mentioned there? Because I I think from reading your book that it seems like he was perhaps the first big name uh, black American abolitionist. He's perhaps not someone who people have heard of today, but um, he had quite an impact when he came over. Can you just tell us a little bit about him and what he did when he came over to the British Isles, what he was trying to do and how he was received?
1: Yeah, sure. So Moses Roper is often a figure that has been quite frankly sidelined in a lot of academic circles and obviously just, I think, um society. You know this is a bold, radical abolitionist and author, survivor of u s. slavery who spoke out against slavery in four different countries um in britain, uh, ireland, canada, and uh, and the u s as well. And he came over to Britain. he came in eighteen thirty five. He actually um, was one of the first students at University um, uh, London, uh, U- University College London, I should say, um, and he um, started lecturing in 1836. And when he published his slave narrative, over the next sort of eight to ten years, he sold upwards of 38,000 copies of his narrative, including 5,000 copies purely in the Welsh language. And he travelled extensively around Britain and Ireland. I mean, his lecturing tour is is quite frankly staggering he lectures not only in sort of the cities that we would associate with uh, abolition or just lecturing you know like Leeds and Birmingham and Edinburgh and and places like that but he goes as far up as Inverness and you know in Scotland and and Penzance and Cornwall and he speaks in Lamberis at the foot of Snowdonia just these amazing amazing locations and he's often sidelined I think because when Frederick Douglass appears in 1845, obviously he le- he leads such a successful tour that I think some of the earlier visitors in comparison get forgotten about. But Roper was, uh, he did lead a very successful tour, but nowhere near the success in terms of Frederick Douglass. And I think what's really fascinating and inspiring about him is that he was really uncompromising in his descriptions of, of slavery and violence. He was unafraid of challenging white fragility, um, whereas uh, sometimes Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists kind of played that balance of performance when they so were
0: talking. Tell, so tell us more about that, Hannah Rose. I mean, let's sort of, let's imagine a situation in Inverness or in some rural Welsh village, and, and the year is 1830-something, 1830 Yeah, 1839. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Presumably these are places where the people coming to this performance – Um, have probably never seen a black person before. And what, what do they see when they come into this, into the town hall or the meeting room or the, or the chapel where he's performing? What, what's the experience like? What does he, what does he do? What does he expect of the audience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think depending on where he was speaking, I just add a caveat is that there would have been some audiences that would have seen a person of colour before. But again, in certain rural locations, it's possible that they would not have seen a person of colour. So there's an element of entertainment, um, sort of a local um, form of entertainment for the local community to go and watch this lecture there are sometimes hundreds of people crammed into this chapel to hear him speak. Um, sometimes, depending again, depending on the location, hundreds of people are turned away um, for want of admission because literally people are cramming down the aisles and they're desperate Do people to have hear. to pay?
0: Do, so, do people pay? Uh,
1: depending on um, the venue. So churches and chapels, no. Um, if there was a town hall, um, sometimes there will be a fee. And again, depending on the audience, that fee would relate to so for example if they were speaking to specifically working class audiences they'd be discounted or sometimes free entrance so there's that kind of discu- um distinction but yes yeah, so um people if they were going into a church or chapel they're obviously cramming into this church and Moses Roper is introduced to um the community and he speaks sometimes between two and three hours um and uh he is talking about Obviously, what U.S. slavery is, and as I was mentioning earlier, in terms of this sort of, he's really uncompromising when he talks about slavery. Uh, Moses Roper is someone who experienced vicious and horrific torture for many years of his life. He tries to escape slavery between sixteen and twenty times, by his count, before he's able to actually escape. So he talks a lot about those escape attempts and how cruel and barbaric slavery is. He also exhibits weapons of torture, so he brings along whips. And, uh, and Chains sometimes actually puts them on to demonstrate how they would have worked. Um, and his the, sort of the newspaper correspondent in terms of the coverage of these lectures are, you know, the, the phrases they use are the sensation of horror. You know, there are gasps in the audience when obviously, the, you know, Roper is exhibiting these instruments of torture, but also describing how they were used in graphic, graphic detail.
0: People were shocked. By this, there's a but there's a kind of prurience, there's a kind of fascination, there's a kind of is there a sort of pornography of violence going on here? I mean, what what do you imagine the audience for these performances are are taking away from it from them?
1: It's an interesting question because. I would love to be able to have a time machine and go back and obviously ask people directly. And sometimes the only accounts we have are from newspaper correspondents. And what's interesting is that they sometimes describe how these instruments of torture work in the same graphic detail. And they describe um how they would have how whips would have been lashed on um someone's back you know with the clothes ripping off you know just the, this I think pornographic is actually a, a word that is is relevant in lots of different um different cases and I think um as I mentioned there's obviously there's a sensation of, of horror as well and and sometimes because Roper is so graphic in his descriptions You get people crying, um, people, you know, obviously he's speaking to predominantly white audiences. They physically cannot understand how violent slavery is. And obviously Roper is trying to tell them that. But he even says in his lectures, you physically can't get it because you are white and also you aren't, you know, you haven't been enslaved. And sometimes because of his graphic descriptions and because he's unwilling to compromise in those graphic descriptions, he um, gets a lot of hate in the press. So there are a lot of newspaper correspondents in in numerous places in in parts of Wales, in in Hampshire, and in parts of Ireland as well, where newspro- newspaper correspondents actually accuse him of memorising accounts of the Spanish Inquisition, because they just believe that he is recounting all of these instances of torture that never happened. And obviously, that's sort of along a sort of white racist schema of his audiences that they physically can't comprehend what Roper is saying. Of course, that doesn't exist. And again, because of racial stereotypes that sometimes people of colour are prone to lying. Okay, he's lying about all of these um, these um, torturous devices. And also just to say, when Roper is in Hampshire, he talks about how some of these instruments of torture uh, are used. And he um, basically talks about how he bought some chains in Birmingham um, the year previously in 1838. So the newspaper correspondent in Hampshire uses that to say, well, these chains aren't actually being used in the U.S. He's just bought them in Birmingham and he's he's lying about that. And obviously what Rope is trying to do is that this is an example, the copy of what would be used in the U.S., um, but obviously that he is attacked for that.
0: So even though uh, he was a, a, a brutally abused enslaved man, his authenticity is continually being challenged by at least some of his audience or some of those reporting on, on, what, he's, on what he's doing. Um, And do you think that that reaction to Roper influenced Frederick Douglass, who you also mentioned earlier, and who is a much, much better known example of a uh, black American abolitionist? When Frederick Douglass came to Britain and he came numerous times, didn't he? Um, Did he did he, as it were, learn from Roper's experience and try a different strategy?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting interesting question because I don't know how well Frederick Douglass was aware of Roper's lectures and also the response. But I think essentially what is interesting is the comparison between the performances of both. So when Roper is talking about all of these graphic descriptions, sometimes he has people in his meetings say, I don't believe you, no one can be whipped that many times and survive. And then Ropers essentially says, I'll take you outside and show you myself. And sometimes that's sort of met with laughter. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to tell whether that is met with laughter. But he's essentially sometimes alienating his audiences. Frederick Douglass talks about incredibly graphic violence. He talks about lynching. He talks about the whipping of um, Aunt Hester, for example, obviously this pivotal moment in his slave narrative, but he doesn't. All the he he doesn't necessarily all the time go into the same amount of graphic detail. Moses Roper is doing in every single speech, laying out all of the graphic details of lynching, whereas Frederick Douglass Douglass doesn't do that. And I think when he's challenged, because Douglass himself is challenged, you know, he gets calls of inauthenticity. But what's really fascinating about him is that if he's interrupted or if someone challenges him, he's really good at turning the tables on this person. So all the audience. Are, instead of being alienated, are kind of on Douglas's side against the person that's challenging Douglas in his lecture. So How give, does he do that? Yeah, so to give you an example, so he's in London in 1846 and he's giving a speech at Finsbury Chapel, and someone essentially shouts from the audience, um, interrupts him and says, Oh, what's the price of a good slave? That's a quote. And instantly Douglas replies, The price of a slave in Louisiana is matched by the price of a pound of cotton in Manchester. And it causes a lot of laughter, but it kind of diffuses the tension a little bit. Um, and completely shuts this person up. And then 10, 15 minutes later, the same person you know, interrupts and says, "You know, I don't necessarily believe you. And Douglas is reading some quotes from Southern newspapers talking about slave auctions and um, runaway slave advertisements, essentially. Um, and he sort of gives another advertisement and he sort of directly says, "You know, do you need another example of facts? And all of the, all of the audience are sort of shouting, no, and there's a few people shouting, yes, one more, which he sort of dutifully gives. So he it's just a different... He's, Frederick Douglass is such a charismatic and brilliant performer and actor, and he's able to sort of incorporate those interruptions um, into, his, uh, into a part of his lectures without necessarily alienating his audiences, if that makes sense.
0: Mm. Um, and you, you talk there about Frederick Douglass being a, an actor. There are some examples in your book, and I'm thinking uh, particularly of, of Henry Box brown who who literally acts right who performs in plays about some of which are about his own life dramatizations of his own life in which he's acting himself can you talk about that and what that why some black abolitionists took it to to that extreme or went down that route of of dramatizing the events of that they wished to convey
1: so i think it's important to say that all African-Americans were performers and actors in their own way because essentially they were um, they were people of colour speaking to predominantly white audiences. So there has to be some kind of element of performance there as well. But what's really interesting is that um, while all African-American activists were coming over to Britain and Ireland to sort of inform the public about slavery, there were different ways of informing the public about slavery. So you had sort of this sort of traditional anti-slavery lecturing route where you would have someone like Frederick Douglass or Moses Roper going on very long lecturing tours. But they were also exhibiting paintings and panoramas and singing songs and just a huge, huge variety of performance and resistance techniques, really. And Henry Box Brown is an interesting figure because he completely spurns these sort of traditional anti-slavery lecturing routes. He is very much an entertainer. He's a performer. He's escaped from slavery. So he essentially posts himself in a box from just outside of Richmond to Philadelphia. And he knows from a very, very early stage, uh, no pun intended, that this is going to be a very, very sort of entertaining way of, of informing the public about slavery. And he brings that box with him to Britain. It's exhibited, you know, countless times all the way around Britain. And he, because he's such a flexible performer, he kind of tries to go with the time. So he he understands that to try and reach people about um, slavery, there are going to be some people who don't want to go or are not interested in going to an anti-slavery Lecture. So he experiments with trying to find different audiences. He specifically goes out to speak to working class audiences and children. He creates obviously this huge panorama, this big painting. He incorporates images of Uncle Tom's cabin to sort of um, exploit the interest around that novel. And in 1857, as you say, he stars in three plays, two of which have an anti slavery theme, and one of them is completely based on his own life with a couple of details that are changed. And he knows that that audience in in Margate in Kent, um, or a lot of that audience, might not necessarily want to attend an anti slavery lecturing tour, but that play is, is very, very abolitionist.
0: So by the time the American Civil War breaks out in 1861, there have been black American abolitionists touring Britain for 30 years. Presumably, that makes a difference to how British people understand the war.
1: I would say yes. And Richard Blackett has a brilliant book on this, Divided Hearts. And he talks a lot about how a lot of the lectures you know, by these African-Americans, either before the war and during the war, go quite a long way in sort of informing the public about slavery. And... I think it's difficult because it's not necessarily that the the sort of grassroots activism would have prevented the British government if they did want to sort of formally recognise the Confederacy. But there was a lot of grassroots support for these African-Americans. But at the same time, there is a lot of division between supporters, you know, people supporting the Union and people supporting the Confederacy. You have, as you know, like Confederate envoys and supporters going around to try and jump up support for the Confederacy. But What African-Americans had in common is that, you know, regardless of why they came over to Britain, there were specific reasons why some folks travelled over, you know, during the Civil War. But they were all going around and lecturing and essentially saying that the Confederacy stood for slavery. It stands for white supremacy. You cannot support... The confederacy if you stand for freedom and again in these locations that had been directly affected very directly affected by the war in terms of famine and the cotton blockade that was very difficult because there was no sort of unanimous support for for the union and
0: i want to ask you a little bit about this notion of the so-called moral capital that britain had accrued from the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. How important was that sense of kind of moral superiority among British audiences?
1: So I think it's really important because it's still, you know, this narrative of superiority and sort of patriotism around this is is still with us today. We focus on US police brutality instead of British institutionalised racism a lot, even now. So in the 19th century, it was still exactly the same. And, And a lot of the newspaper coverage of black abolitionist lectures really mention obviously about British abolition, um, how US slavery was a sort of foul blot on transatlantic relationships in the world as a whole. And as you mentioned, black abolitionists, you know, play to this as a, as part of their performative technique, because by mentioning the success of British abolition, you're going to have a successful meeting. You're going to have people come and listen to you. You're not going to have a very successful meeting if you stand there for two and a half hours um, and attack white people for all of that length of time even though they would probably deserve it they would deserve it about the kind of hypocrisies around British abolition and obviously there's this sort of displacement narrative that takes place where uh, Britain deliberately and performatively focuses on US slavery it's far easier and more comfortable to deal with US slavery than think about Um, You know, their own history of colonialism and the violence going on in the Caribbean and the fact that slavery did still exist in some parts of the British Empire. empire. But this is really emphasised after the publication of Harriet Beecher Stowe's sort of infamous Anti slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, and Sarah Meir has also written a lot about this. And, you know, um, it's the, again this sort of focus on US slavery. You've got all these dramatic productions of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which include British figures like Britannia, sort of saying, Oh, the fugitives have now, you know, escaped to Canada and we welcome them and we welcome them to Britain and all of this patriotic language. But what's fascinating as well is that, again, because of this performance, African Americans are really creating a balance between this. So sometimes, and Frederick Douglass included, would say, you Know obviously well done for abolishing the slave trade and you know abolition. You know, we look to you, um, because you're one of the first people, first nations that did this, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But slavery wouldn't exist in the US if it wasn't because of Britain. You have a moral duty to do something, you know. And Moses Roper and William Craft actually, in two different instances, um, sort of one in the 1830s and in the late 1850s uh, uh, for William Craft, is that they both say. I would not be enslaved if it wasn't for the history of Britain, specifically. And then you have folks like Reverend Samuel Ringgold Ward, who has this brilliant, brilliant quote, which I love and quote quite a lot, is that he says to a York audience in 1854, you know, since the Tudor times, the English soil has reddened with the blood of my race. And in this particular speech, he talks about how by 1854, people aren't fussed about Uncle Tom's Cabin anymore because that sort of has died down a little bit, Um, you know, or the craze has died down a little bit. And then he also talks specifically in the speech about how the British government completely ignores black British sailors who are docking in American ports like Savannah and Charleston and they're being sold into slavery, and the British government literally does nothing about it. And he's saying that you're calling yourself a free nation, you're celebrating British abolition, but you're not actually living up to those principles of freedom. And just to say, you know, finally, you know, activists were well aware that Britain was built on the wealth of, of slavery and in the slave trade. John Seller Martin talks about this, particularly during the American Civil War. And Ida B. Wells Barnett writes this blistering history of Liverpool, where she essentially says the wealth of every brick in in that city is made from the slave trade. How Confederate ships, as you know, were built there during the Civil War and how the the city and the nation as a whole have this sort of collective amnesia surrounding Britain's dark and very violent history uh, against people of colour.
0: You mentioned Uncle Tom's cabin Uh, one of the one of the reasons why uncle tom's cabin was so powerful at the time was because of the centering of family life so it was putting at the center of the horror of slavery as it were a a kind of middle-class victorian ideal of the the nurturing family bonds and showing how under enslavement these were destroyed and that prompts me to ask you about Gender, and we've been talking so far about male black abolitionists. Um, But in your book, you have also uncovered these incredible stories of of female black American abolitionists, both in the early part of the nineteenth century, but also after the Civil War and after the end of slavery in the United States. How did a female performance? Um, differ from those of a male performance. What were the differing strategies which these female lecturers could employ?
1: So, obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm mainly talking about men, and it's really, really important to highlight the contributions of, of black women too. And because of Victorian racial and gender dynamics, you know, the women's place essentially um, was the domestic sphere; it was the home. So, when black women spoke or appeared on stage, they were facing very, very different barriers to their uh, male counterparts so you have Sarah Parker Remond who gave a very successful lecturing tour in the late 1850s and early 1860s she was one of the few women who was able to to do this she had a lot of support from British women's groups as well she revives anti slavery societies she lectures alongside Frederick Douglass actually on his return to Britain in 1859 and she appears before the, pub- the public in a sort of plea for sisterhood in a way where she urges women in, in particular, you know, in the audiences to join anti slavery societies, put a lot of moral pressure on their communities and obviously those in the US. And she also talks about sexual violence against women. She also talks about the case of Margaret Garner, you know, activists, sort of male activists, sometimes recounted stories of violence against nameless women, you know, in a kind of performance of masculinity as well. And and Raymond was one of the few women who were able to sort of stand on a platform and actually challenge this sort of name some of those women and offer a kind of more personal and and intimate approach into the lives of, of what an enslaved woman faced. And Ellen Craft has a very different approach. She actually arrives in England much earlier. So from the end of 1849, she did give a couple of lectures in the US. um, But she actually chose to sort of remain, uh, or have a sort of silent presence on the British stage, which was a deliberate performative technique. I've seen some Folks describe her as being very passive, which I find insulting to her memory because it was a deliberate performance technique to use her figure, to use her body to illustrate the barbarities of slavery. Ellen was described as as near white; um, she had a very fair complexion because of her because her mother was raped by her enslaver. And you know, when she stood up in front of her audiences, she wanted people to to recognise that. But just to sort of finish up and say that it's it is really important to mention women and how the archive often erases and invisibilizes the contributions of um, of black women or sort of frames their bodies through um, sort of violence, essentially. And we have to try and find lots of different sources to, to recover their voices and their testimony um, from this sort of fractured archive of, of anti-slavery. And the other activist I mentioned in the book, Julia Jackson, is, is a really important example of this. I mean, we really don't know a lot about her. And the small glimpses that we have in the newspapers are very much... So they're framed through her husband's John Andrew Jackson, because the very likely male newspaper correspondent is giving a long coverage of her husband. And then a lot of examples where Mrs. Jackson stood up and gave a speech. And that's it. So those are the challenges that obviously we're facing.
0: Finally, I just want to ask you a little bit about what the longer term legacy of all this is, or perhaps to put it another way, what the resonances are between today and the 19th century, because we still live in a time where there are powerful connections and echoes and interactions uh, between Britain and the United States, especially in relation to questions of racial justice. Often, it seems to me that questions about race in Britain are often seen refracted refracted through the lens of our perception of what is the situation in the United States and strategies that are deployed, the Black Lives Matter movement being example, strategies that are deployed in the United States are kind of adapted or adopted directly in a British context. Um, So do you see, Hannah Rose, this as a kind of part of an even longer transatlantic story?
1: Absolutely. Um, I should also say as well, you know, we've had a year of Black Lives Matter protests and we're also still living in a pandemic which is disproportionately affecting people of colour. Right. And one of my favourite phrases from Frederick Douglass is that he gave to a Leeds audience in 1859 and he said there can be no peace where there is injustice. And obviously that's something that was relevant um, when he said it in 1859, you know, in the civil rights movement, obviously, you know, there are links to Martin Luther King and obviously other activists there. And also right now, you know, the legacies of slavery and injustice surround us, as you say. So it's no surprise really that the words and testimonies of survivors of slavery and, and, and racism, you know, are still very relevant. And I think what's really interesting is, is when I give a lot of talks, about these sort of parallels, because that's a lot of the questions that I sometimes get asked. And I specifically focus on Frederick Douglass, but also Moses Roper, because his life story is so relevant in lots of ways. And I hope I've got across that today, but our discussions of racism and brutality today, whether it's in the US or the UK, is often that uh, black testimony and violence against black bodies is often ignored, downplayed, uh, rejected, invisibilized, And Roper's case actually teaches us about white fragility how white people instead of becoming allies actually reject black testimony because it's far more comfortable to believe those horrors don't exist even when there's a video of um of such violence and and those sorts of videos and photographs obviously link back to Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett's case obviously with um with lynching you know those parallels between the lynchings that um Ida B. Wells Barnett talks about in the US and and in Britain are still relevant you know we have Mike Brown's body when he was murdered by police was left in the street for four hours. You know, makeshift memorials to him were driven over by police twice. You know, that kind of disrespect and injustice obviously is is very much um, still with us today. So one of my hopes from the book, because I do talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and how Black Lives Matter activists actually travelled over to to Britain in 2015 is that, you know, there's a trajectory between activists in the 19th century and obviously now, but actually, you know, it's recognizing how far we still have to go to accomplish their mm. anti-racist missions.
0: Mm. Uh, Hannah Rose, um, thank you um, so much, indeed, and congratulations um, on your book, which is called "Advocates of Freedom: African American Transatlantic Abolitionism in the British Isles." I've got it, got it here, <laughs> thank <isn't> it? You. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's—I mean, it's—it's it's filled with—it's just an extraordinary wealth of detailed research that you've done and i would urge people as well as encouraging them to to read your book if they can to as well to go to your website and look at the 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 mapping exercise you've you've done which um which just shows the sheer scale of this i mean it really is a great example of of a kind of brilliant piece of 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 recovery of of historical research of a whole kind of wealth of experience which which you have um uncovered which we we may most people I don't think are probably aware of. But thank you very much indeed for this um, conversation, Hannah Rose.
1: Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it.
0: Hannah Rose Murray, whose book Advocates of Freedom, has been published by Cambridge University Press. The story of the mass enslavement of black people and the struggle to end that enslavement is one that binds together Britain and America. After the revolution, slavery in the British Empire and in the newly independent United States went off on different trajectories. For structural political reasons, the campaigns for abolition followed different paths. But in both countries, abolitionists could appeal to the contrast between a self-conception as a land of liberty and the reality of slavery. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast produced by the RAI, Oxford University's Centre for the Study of the United States and its Place in the World. If you've enjoyed this episode, please listen to the many others on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye.